Well, if you're awake now, will you please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. John Mark Comer, in his latest book about spiritual formation, writes something interesting that I want to share with you. He says, most people over the age of 80 are either the best or the worst people you know. Hear me, I do not mean this in an ageist way, just the opposite, in fact. Most 20-somethings I know are just kind of mid, as my teenage kids would say. They aren't saints or potential terrorists. They're just normal. This isn't true of most elderly people I know. Run through your mental Rolodex of people past 80. Most of them are either the most gracious, happy, grateful, patient, loving, self-giving people you know, just happy to be alive and sitting in the room with you, or the most bitter, manipulative, spiteful people you know, oozing emotional poison into their family lines and reveling in others' pain. Sure, some are in the middle of the bell curve, but most are noticeably to one side. That's because they've spent almost a century becoming a person, being formed. Through some strange invisible chemical reaction of habits, mindsets, chosen attitudes, life circumstances, suffering, suffering, successes, failures, and random events, they become who they are. This is spiritual formation. Comer's point is that we are all in process. He says this is the crux of what it means to be human, that we're changing, that we're growing, we're evolving. And the question is not, are we becoming a person? The question is, who or what are we becoming? Who or what are we becoming? We've launched into this series that's gonna take us throughout the rest of this year. In the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter five through seven, where Jesus gives us this vision about what life is supposed to look like for people who follow him. Essentially what it is, it's a picture of who he is. Through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he, he takes his followers and he melts us down and he pours us into this mold of him. And I asked this question last week as we began, are you sure you wanna follow him up this mountain? Because it's gonna be a hard climb. Um, to come at it from the opposite way this week to ask this question, can we afford not to? Because Comer says this, for those who desire to follow Jesus, here is the reality we must turn and face. If we're not being intentionally formed by Jesus himself, then it's highly likely we are being unintentionally formed by someone or something else. Who or what is forming you? Who or what is shaping you? Molding you? What are you becoming? If it's not Jesus, what is it? I'm going to pause and pray, and then we're going to jump into the first portion of the Sermon on the Mount, something we call the Beatitudes. Heavenly Father, once again, desperately need you. I'm struggling this hour, the same thing with what I was struggling with last hour, that within my own heart, there's an idol of control, and I need for you to knock it down and cut off its hand and its head. I need for you to help me submit to your will and your way. God, I need you, and I need you to speak, and I need uh, for, for myself to get out of the way this morning. I pray that, that you speak either through me or in spite of me but I pray that people hear from you because you're what we need. In Jesus' name, 
Well, people like Homer have pointed out that the essence of, of discipleship, or the essence of following Jesus, or what it means to be a Christian, really is foundationally is three things. And the first is being with Jesus. Be with him. Um, that's where the Sermon on the Mount actually starts. Chapter five, verse one, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Um, these are people who have left their livelihoods and their lives behind in order to follow him. And so Jesus gets away from the, the major cities and the towns, and he goes up on this mountain, and you can imagine him sitting there uh, on this, this hillside and maybe uh, slightly elevated than other people so that he can, he can be heard, and you see his disciples sort of gathered around his feet. And there's probably more than 12. There's probably men and women who have chosen to follow him. But then there's also the crowds. And it may be that some people from the crowds will hear what he has to say and choose to follow him too. But we need to see that there's this distinction between those who are with him and those who are just observing. Those who are with him and those who are just bystanders. Those who are with him and, and those who are just, just there maybe for the entertainment value of it. They're with him. And so that's where it begins. As we move into the Beatitudes, what we, we see through these is these are the characteristics of Christ. This is the character of Christ that he desires to form in us. So a disciple starts with being with Jesus and then desires to become like Jesus. As we move into the main body of the Sermon on the Mount after chapter uh, five, verse 13, what we see is that Jesus will begin to show us what to do, how to live, right? So it starts with being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus in order to do what Jesus did. That's the goal. That's the process. And that's what we're, we're gonna be looking at or beginning today. But, but we start this morning with, with us sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him in order to become like him. So from Matthew 5, beginning in verse two, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our work this morning uh, really is one, uh, to give an overview of all the Beatitudes. I'll talk a little bit about what they are and what they're intended to do and, and, and all of that. We're going to give an overview of, of the Beatitudes. Then we're going to dive into the first Beatitude, examining the, the very first thing that he says, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. So the first thing to point out as we begin to, to, to take a look at these Beatitudes or these characteristics is that they are all meant to be taken as a whole. They're meant to be understood as, as a whole picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay? Um, in Galatians chapter five, Paul he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay? Now, when you examine that passage, the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's not plural. 
It's, it's singular, it's, it's one fruit that is displayed in nine different ways. Or, or, you're the, or you could say, it is one fruit, but it takes nine words to describe what that fruit is like. So in other words, it's not like one person who is living out of the power of the Holy Spirit and walking in the Holy Spirit has, has peace, and another person who's walking by the power of the Holy Spirit has self-control. Rather, all people walking by the power of the Spirit are, are meant to experience all of this. It's one fruit. The same way with the Beatitudes, that the, a person who's following Jesus Christ, who is a disciple of him, who is with him, who's becoming like him, who's, who's growing and, and becoming what, and doing what he's going to do, then this person displays all of these characteristics. So it's not like one disciple um, is, is merciful and one disciple hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Right? All one. The other thing to understand, however, is that they build on one another. There's a, a, a purposeful order in all of these that starts with being poor in spirit, right? So they, they're, they're stacked one on top of each other. They're, they're layered intentionally, right? So we move from being with Jesus and then we become like Jesus and then we, be, and we do what Jesus did. But, but before we can do what Jesus did, for instance, before we can be salt and light kind of truth witnesses in the world, before we can even get there, we have to have this, the character of Christ grown in us first or, or start to become what Christ is. So they build on one another. Um, the second thing to, to point out about the Beatitudes is that um, they begin and end in the same spot with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these. That's where it begins and where it, where it ends. It's this closed circle. And what Jesus is doing through that is he's reminding this of, of, of the assuredness of this kingdom that we're, we're getting. He's pointing to this kingdom and he's, he's reminding us that it's ours, but he's reminding us of something different in regards to our identity. David Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, the Christian and the non-Christian belong to two entirely different realms. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord starts and ends the Beatitudes with it because it is his way of saying that the first thing you have to realize about yourself is that you belong to a different kingdom. You belong to a different kingdom. Third thing to point out about the characteristics of these Beatitudes, that they're spiritual in nature, not physical. Especially this first one. Right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Spiritual in nature, not physical. Um, it's important to make a distinction between the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and what we call the Sermon on the Plain, which you see in the, the Gospel of Luke. There's lots of similarities between the two messages, but they're, they're different contexts, they're different audiences, they're essentially different sermons. And so in the Sermon on the Plain, you do see Jesus talking about blessed are the poor, and he is, he's talking about material poverty, physical poverty. That's not what's in view in the Sermon on the Mount. It's important to see that um, someone who, who struggles with physical poverty, you know, financial uh, impoverishment, they're going to struggle just as much being poor in spirit as the wealthy person is. Okay? So the, the Beatitudes are spiritual in nature, not uh, physical. Um, the fourth thing, um, before we, we begin to look at the first Beatitude, is to note that what is promised is, is, is what is appropriate to each Beatitude. Right? What is promised is appropriate. Um, lastly, um, as each characteristic describes every disciple, so every blessing is received by every disciple. So, for example, uh, 
People who, who mourn are gonna be comforted, right? Appropriate response or reward for the beatitude. Um, but additionally, it's uh, it, that comfort comes for all the disciples. So all the rewards are for all the disciples, just as all of the characteristics are for all the disciples. We'll see this as we unpack the Beatitudes. We're gonna go nice and slow. We're only gonna go one Beatitude at a time. And so let's look at the first one. This is the first step for someone who is with Jesus and becoming like Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, that word blessed there is makairos. We talked about this last week. This is a really, really important word, which when it's translated into uh, to English, it loses some of its effectiveness, some of its power, some of its, of its meaning, when we just say it's, it means blessed. Um, there's two words that we translate in our English Bibles, blessed. One is eulogio, which is, which is a Greek word, and, and what that has in view is this picture of God gifting someone something. So God blessing someone with a child or God blessing someone with, um, uh, with uh, wealth or God blessing somebody with, with happiness or something along those lines. Um, it's, it's a picture of God giving to someone, imparting, and it's seen as blessing. Makairos is different. Um, Makairos has in view um, something that, uh, that, that is doing what it's supposed to do. It, it has in view something that, that as it's created for a purpose and, and because it's, it's living out of that purpose, then it's flourishing and it's thriving, it's fruitful. Those, those are the words that are helpful in understanding Makairos. Flourishing, thriving, fruitful. Uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is a picture of something that's placed where it's supposed to be placed, and because of the nourishment of the soil that it's in, it's growing, it's thriving, it's fruitful, it's flourishing. This is a picture of someone who understands that they've been designed by a creator for a purpose and they're living out that purpose. That's the picture of flourishing. That's the, the picture of these beatitudes. That's the picture of, of blessed here or happy here, depending on your English translation. Flourishing is the one who is poor in spirit. Now, Whatever poor in spirit means, that seems um, a little bit paradoxical. That sounds, where flourishing over here sounds pretty positive, flourishing, thriving, fruitful, poor in spirit, maybe grates against the ears a little bit, sounds paradoxical, what is meant by poor in spirit? Um, John Stott points out that this notion, or this picture that Jesus is drawing from actually comes from the book of Isaiah. And uh, Stott says the poor man in the Old Testament is one who is both afflicted and unable to save himself, and who therefore looks to God for salvation while recognizing he has no claim on him. It's someone who says, I have great need, but God, I, I can't hold him to providing for that need. Um, he goes on and says, to be poor in spirit is therefore to acknowledge one's spiritual poverty, indeed our spiritual bankruptcy before God for we are sinners under the holy wrath of God deserving nothing but the judgment of God to be poor in spirit is to recognize how big a sinners we are it's to recognize how, how what we face in God is his wrath uh, 
David Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, he adds to this. He, he says, uh, really what poverty of spirit means is an emptying. Being empty. Empty of what? I was talking with somebody uh, in between gatherings and, and he pointed out um, it's, it's empty of, of power. You know, um, what happened in the garden in Genesis chapter three in our rebellion against God, that's the opposite of poverty of spirit. The, the reaching out and, and, and taking hold of power that we were never meant to have, that's the opposite of what, of what we see here. It's reaching for power. And so the, the reversal of that is to empty yourself of power. Empty yourself of pride. There's two sides to the coin of pride. Um, the first side is the obvious one, right? It's the individual who is haughty and arrogant and who says, hey, everybody, look how great I am, right? We've seen that pride. That's obvious. Um, Jesus talks about this in, in Luke 18. He's talking, he tells this, this story. I'll just read it to you. He says, um, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. This is a man who's not empty. This is a man who, who is looking at what he has, he's pointing to it, and he's saying, God, you owe me. I'm not like them, and here's what I do. I fast, I, de- I deprive myself, and, and I give, I'm generous, so God, therefore, you owe me. This is a man who's, who's not empty. Now, this is an obvious form of pride and arrogance. However, the flip side of that coin, though, is, is not the person who says, hey, everybody, look at me. It's the person who's saying, oh, please don't look at me. I'm a failure. I'm a nobody. We, we, we tend to call this humility, but it's really false humility. It's, it's an attempt often to garner mercy and acceptance from others. It's a way to manipulate people to get us to feel sorry for them so that they can continue on in their weakness. But essentially, it's another form of power Manipulation is the power. But, but both pride. Pride is known by an over-concern with self. And whether that's, hey, everybody, look at me, or it's nobody look at me, it's still an over-concern with self. Um, Comer puts it this way, grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. Don't conflate the two. And, and, and here's what this means. We can't earn the kingdom. It's given by grace, but once it's given, grace doesn't stand against effort to become in reality what we've been given spiritually. Effort is to say, I'm in this kingdom and I don't deserve to be, but I will try to become the citizen this grace says that I am. I have been given the kingdom by grace and I am not yet fit for the kingdom, therefore through effort I strive to become a creature that belongs in that kingdom. This is not legalism. And it's not earning. It's already been earned for you. The kingdom is already given to you. But there's this this realization that that positionally we may have it, but we don't quite look like that citizen yet. If we were to do some self-examination, what we would find is pride and a desire for power in each one of our hearts. 
that we go to God every day and we're pointing to something and we're saying, because of this, I've earned it. Because of this, you owe me. And so positionally, though, there's this tempting that's happened. There's still this work to be done where every day we empty. Every day we let go. Where every day we turn it over. There's this work to be done. Poor in spirit, it means emptiness. Emptiness of power, emptiness of pride. Um, Going back to the tax collector. Jesus' story, Luke 18. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The empty person says, I've got nothing. Nothing. Again, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, poverty of spirit is to feel that we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence on him and his grace and mercy. Got nothing. D.A. Carson adds this that poverty of spirit is the conscious confession of unworth before God. Constant. Conscious. Uh, as such, it is the deepest form of repentance. That's where it begins. That's why this is the first beatitude. Repentance is where it starts. So flourishing is the empty one. Flourishing is the repentant one. Thriving is the one who, 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 who brings nothing to God, saying, you owe me, either positively or negatively. See, positively, we can act like the Pharisee, and we can come to God, and we could say, because of all the things that I've done, God, you owe me. Because of mora- my morality, because of, 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 of all the, 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 the people that I've fed, or the, the people that I've clothed, or, or, or all the wonderful things that... that, that that I've, that I've accomplished, you owe me. We, we can't point to our morality. We can't point uh, to our family of origin. You can't say, well, my dad was a pastor, so therefore, right? Now, that could be positive or negative, depending. But you can't point to your family of origin and, and say, that's what's earned it for me. You can't point to your nationality and say, because I put my hand on my heart and I sing my heart out to God bless America every ball game I'm at. You can't point to your accomplishments. You can't point to the, the status that you've earned in your neighborhood or in your workplace. You can't point to your good grades if you're a student. You can't point to your education and what school you graduated from. You can't point to what, what, what projects you've finished or, 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 or anything like that. You can't even point to your own virtues. You can't point to anything. On the flip side of that coin, though, you also can't say, Well, because of my trauma, you owe me, God. Because of the sins that have been committed against me. Because of the the character defects that I have as a result of of the, the hard upbringing that I have, God, you owe me. Or because of the church hurt I've experienced. See, empty, it means empty. Nothing. That's why the hymn says this, nothing in my hand I bring Simply to the cross I cling. Now remember, the Sermon on the Mount is a countercultural vision of what life is supposed to be like. 
countercultural vision. Um, if the world were to write Beatitudes, the world wouldn't start with blessed are the poor in spirit. The world would light, write something like blessed are the self-esteemed. Blessed are the ones who look in the mirror and say I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. See, ours is the culture not of emptiness, but of self-promotion. Ours is the culture of the selfie. Ours is the culture of follow me for more tips. Ours is the culture of the influencer. Not the culture of the, of the emptiness, of, of, of repentance before God. Ours is the culture of self-reliance, self-confidence, and self-expression. But you see, that's not the culture of Christ. If you will be with Jesus and if you, will, if you will pursue to be like Jesus, what you will find is that the more you become like Christ, the less you'll be like the world. The more you become like Jesus, the less you'll look like the rest of the world around you. And Jesus was poor in spirit. He said this, the words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus was constantly, constantly pointing to his Father. He's the source. I could do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. In all the prophecies that he fulfilled, he fulfills this picture of a Messiah who is low. The, the last week of his life, as he goes to, the, the, to Jerusalem, this prophecy that, that, that says that, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And look what other people said about him. Paul said he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Poverty of spirit. He, as, as God, leaves the throne, becomes human, and not, not a human being at the top of the pyramid, but at the bottom of it to live this sinless life, to go to that cross where he takes on our sin and he stands between us and God and absorbs the wrath that we deserve. Poured out, empty. And because of his poverty and spirit, you and I get the kingdom of heaven. I want you to see that. If you have the kingdom of heaven, it's because he was poor in spirit and because his work was imputed to you. See, where will we begin if we're poor in spirit is, is because of his poverty in spirit. Imputed to us. The reformers, they're fond of saying that um, the works of the law point us to Jesus for justification, but Jesus points us to the law for sanctification. And what they meant by this was that the law creates this standard that we can't achieve. 
okay? When Jesus, later on in the sermon, he will say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Whatever perfect is, means, we talked a little bit about last week, but whatever perfect means, I think we all know we're not gonna make it. That standard, we're not gonna get it, right? It causes us to look to Jesus who gets it for us. He makes the way for us. See, so it's, it's a gift of grace that we become perfect because it's imputed to us. This is called justification. God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his son in us. So we're justified before him. But you see, after we've been justified, Jesus says, look back at the law. Now try. Now, now see what this points you to. See the kind of life this is, is guiding you to. Try. Grow become, form. This is called sanctification. And it's a process. How do we become poor in spirit? Positionally, it's given to you by Christ. But how do we become in actuality what he says of us? Well, before we answer the question how we become poor in spirit, I'm gonna raise a different one. How is this poverty a spirit of thriving flourishing and fruitful life. How is poverty of spirit thriving or flourishing? Um, first of all, it's because we understand the kingdom of God is coming. Kingdom of heaven will one day be our complete and whole entire reality. The kingdom of heaven will be in existence where there, there is no more mourning, no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. This, this flourishing, thriving reality in all that it was meant to be, that's coming and that's assured. So that creates some hope here and now. However, Jesus also intends that there's some flourishing and some thriving now. Abundant life now. Fruitfulness now. How? How is that, how is that flourishing? What if this truth could sink deep into your, your soul? That you are already accepted and loved by Christ. What if this truth could permeate your very being? That all the work that's necessary for God to, to, to embrace you, to adopt you, to, to bring you in, all of that work has already been done for you. You're already approved. Jesus and, and, and the Father will not love you any more than they do right at this moment. Do you know what that would do? You'd be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its life does not wither. In all that you do, you would prosper because there's this freedom that comes. There's this liberty that, that, that comes from being empty. From, from realizing that, that, that there's this, this tyranny of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-expression. Our culture upholds this and calls them virtues, but what they are, in fact, is an endless treadmill that never gets you anywhere. And the approval and the acceptance that you're looking for, you never find it. You never reach it because you're trying to, to use what you got to get there. Imagine the freedom from that. You see, these, these, these ideas of, 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 of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-expression, they're, they're not virtues, they're shackles. A third, thriving, flourishing kind of life awaits for us when we 
when we stop pointing to stuff and say, you owe me. I'll close with the application and, and the answer to the previous question. How do we become poor in spirit? It's through a lifelong process of sanctification that involves being with Jesus. Sanctification is this really important word. What it, what it says is that um, we are in the process of becoming like Jesus, and it's a slow one. And I know the answer you were hoping for wasn't this. We're the kind of people that when we want to have a lawn, we don't throw out seed, we roll out sod. We want the instant gratification. We want the work to be done now. To, to become poor in spirit, we would rather, hey, give me a three-step program. None exists. Give me a 12-step program, finally. Okay. But give me a prayer to pray. Give me a pilgrimage to go on. Give, give me a retreat. Give me something that I can do this and get this done now. And that's not the way it works. The process of Christ being formed in us, the process of us being melted down and pouring into that mold of who Jesus is, it takes our whole lives. And even when you reach your deathbed, you will not have crossed that finish line, but if you will spend your life in the presence of him, desiring to become like him in order to do what he did, if you spend your life towards that, he will be faithful and just to finish the work that was started in you and you will one day stand in the kingdom a complete, whole, finished, perfect person that looks like Jesus. There are no quick answers. It is as Eugene Peterson says, a long obedience in the same direction long obedience but one day you're going to be that 80 year old and people will see they're not what they were when they were 40 or when they were 30 or when they were 20 they may not be finished yet but they're not where they were started by the grace of God uh, the week after Thanksgiving talked about the practice of silence and solitude the spiritual discipline and when we look at the life of Jesus and his ministry, we see him regularly getting away from the crowds and from the noise and going to be with his heavenly father through the power of the spirit. Solitude alone with the father. Shutting out all that other stuff, silence. If our rabbi modeled this, we're no better than him. We need it too. You cannot become like him without being with him. If you're not spending time with him, what are you being changed into? You can't become like him if you're not with him. Who or what is forming you? And what are you being formed into? Uh, I'll, I will, over the, the course of these Beatitudes, I'm going to be nagging you about silence and solitude on a weekly basis. The place to start, there's a QR code in front of you. You scan it, it'll take you to a web page. You scroll all the way down. 
There's a resource. One is a video that shows you what it's about. Two, you put a little bit of information in and you get a free downloadable guide, a four-week guide that helps you start. It's simple. You could do it with a group of friends. But you can't become like Jesus without being with Jesus. You can't. I exhort you to do that. I encourage you to do that. See, here's the reality. People, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, especially us as evangelical Christians, we're like, oh, we, we, we're not legalistic. Like, we're, we really frown on people telling us to do stuff. You know, because that's earning it and we don't earn it, right? Grace isn't opposed to, to, to effort. It's opposed to earning it. But it's not opposed to effort. Don't conflate the two. Because disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, these, these spiritual practices, they're not about earning God's love for you. It's not about earning God's grace. It's not about earning his kingdom. It's not about earning anything. It's a response of love to the one who first loved you. And I'll be honest, it's partly about us choosing to grow up. For us to become mature disciples following him. In order to do what he did, we have to be what he is. But we can't be what he is without being with him. I'm going to close in prayer and then we're going to partake of communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for for leading the way that when we look at all of these beatitudes, Jesus, you're telling us to do something that you've already done, to be something you've already demonstrated that you are. Lord Jesus, thank you for the tremendous amount of humility that you being God would do this for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that in the moments that follow that you would bring to our hearts and our minds areas of control and areas that we're pointing to in our life and in our hearts and saying, because of this, God, you owe me. Would you bring those to the surface so that we can repent and give them to you? I pray that what follows in these moments is, is a people emptying themselves. In Jesus' name. You can pass the communion elements now. They're on the inside of the rows, about knee height. I will say this, that this is uh, something that disciples of Jesus participate in. That this is, uh, it's, it's a symbolic act of people who are not bystanders. Who are people who have said, I'm with him. I want to be like him. I want to follow him. I want to do what he did. But, but most importantly, it's a recognition. He's my king, and I submit. That's what the kingdom of God is for us, by the way. It's a king, and we're people that submits to him. And, and so if that's not where you're at this morning, that's fine. Nobody's paying attention. But let it pass by you. This is for those who sit at the feet of Jesus and call him king and call him rabbi. Paul from 1 Corinthians 11 says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
In the moments of silence that are to follow, I, I ask you to take this question to your Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, what am I holding on to that prevents me from being empty before you? What am I pointing to that demands you to give me what I want? And when you've seen it, when you've identified it, then say, Lord Jesus, help me release it into your hands.